0: Enjoy local voices, enjoy local opinions, all on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts, featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local.
1: Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. I'm honored to have award-winning chef Nina Compton on the show today. We bill our podcast as alternating helpings of food plus drink plus culture, and today we get all three. I've not been to New Orleans in several years, but after doing research for today, my wife, and I and several family family members are planning to make a beeline to Nina's places. Born and raised on the island of St. Lucia, we're going to chat with Nina about her restaurants, Compare Le Pan and Bywater Bistro, both opened with her and her business partner, her husband, Larry Miller, in the mystical, magical city that is New Orleans. Since 2016, when Compare Le Pan opened, both places have become two of the most popular dining establishments in a city that has no shortage of legendary places to eat. Quoting from an article in The New Yorker, quote, New Orleans, as the old line goes, is a city of a thousand restaurants, but only one menu. <laughs> that might not be so true <laughs> anymore. We'll get Nina's take on that. Rather than search for elusive adjectives to describe New Orleans, I'll borrow a quote from the late great Anthony Bourdain quote in America, there might be better gastronomic destinations than New Orleans, but there is no place more uniquely wonderful. With the best restaurants in New York, you'll find something similar to it in Paris or Copenhagen or Chicago. But there is no place like New Orleans. So it's a must see city because there is no explaining it, no describing it. You can't compare it to anything so far and away. New Orleans, end quote. The city has also produced some. Fairly recognizable names, Legasse, Chase, Marsalis, Louis Armstrong, Dr. John, Master P, and an old buddy of mine, Chef Richard Hughes, whose Pelican Club has been serving the French Quarter since 1990. So shout out to Richard and his lovely wife, Jean. Nina emerged on the New Orleans restaurant scene after a run on Top Chef that ended with a decision many viewers were not happy about, leaving Nina in the runner-up seat. She did, however, win... The postseason fan favorite award. So uh there. Garden and Gun <laughs> Magazine's Brett Martin wrote in December of 2017. Nina Compton, air apparent and spells air, H A-R-E, which is a play on Compare Le Pan, apparent in New Orleans. Quote Compton's ethereal Compare Le Pan, arguably the hottest restaurant in town and is a case study in the push and pull of tradition and the boundless future of the present city cuisine. That's a lot to take on uh, in any city, much less one is revered for its food as New Orleans. She has since been awarded Best New Chef by Food and Wine in 2017. And best chef in the South in 2018. That's no small feat. The South is, is <laughs> pretty popular for, with, with with great chefs. So Nina Compton, so nice to meet you. Thank you for being here and welcome to Corner Table Talk.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for your kind and generous words.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And I and I should also give a big thank you to our mutual friend and fellow Saint Lucia native, Suresh Shakuri whose mom actually is one of my favorite home cooks of all time. Just a lovely, generous guy and a warm, loving family. So, Suresh, thank you so much for the uh, the introduction to uh, to Nina.
0: I just want to say that, you know, I had the fondest memories of Suresh bringing us meals to the to our house. Um, and his mom is an incredible, incredible cook.
1: Isn't she? And just lovely people. I mean, they they took yes. my wife and I in several years ago and... St. Lucia. We stayed at their house. She cooked for me every day. I mean, mangoes galore. And and it was just a lovely experience. (laughs) So, Chef, we kick things off with what I call short order questions. I don't think that needs any further explaining to you. So, with that said, I will get started. What is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to these days?
0: Ah, a little bit of everything. It depends on the mood, really. Um, It starts with Things like, you know, Bob Marley to Steel Pulse to Blood Orange to Rebirth, uh, Brass Band to Dr. John. It, it's just about playing something positive. And that starts my day. And that trickles into the kitchen where we play music in the kitchen. I'm like, all right, guys, what fish are we going to listen to today? Because it, it gets the staff jazzed about, you know, being at work and creating a positive environment for them to cook really good food. So music is a huge, huge part of my day.
1: Is it multiple choice in the kitchen? Kitchen, you give other folks a chance to select the music or are you pretty much the dj uh
0: well i started off and then the last half an hour before we start service um we put like a request half an hour where i go and i ask everybody what song do you want to hear and <laughs> it's, it's 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 actually funny because we had somebody who requested tv wonder and everybody was singing and then the next song went to like uh a tupac song with like dr dre that was like very hardcore so it's 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 kind of nice to see different personalities in the kitchen and knowing what my staff listen to. It's kind of an insight of the person I, I'm working with. So it, it, it becomes very jovial because you, you see people that you'd never think listen to Stevie Wonder, you know, or Tupac or whoever it is, but it's just an insight of their life.
1: Or or a sixty year old like me who knows every lyric to, to Nas is New York, New York. Yeah. So yeah, always <laughs> <Yeah>. a surprise. <laughs> you spend a lot of time on your feet, I presume. So what is your footwear of choice?
0: Uh in the kitchen I wear bloodstones that are pretty comfortable. Um in the kitchen. But outside the kitchen I I like to show a little bit of style. So I wear things from you know, my my husband actually got me a pair of Steph Curry high tops, um, which I'm in love. I'm in love with. I actually don't want to wear them too much because they're so pretty. Um, and the <laughs> color that it's actually the color is is all the shades of different curries, so it it matches my personality. So I have those. You know, I wear J P. Tods if I just want to go for a casual walk. Um, and you know, a classic Gucci loafer. You can't go wrong with that.
1: No, you certainly can. I I love everything that you chose. So. And this might be hard, but the thing you miss most about Saint Lucia,
0: I miss. I miss my mom. Um, my mom is. I mean, we live in the same house since I I grew up there. It's forty something years. Um, but I, I really, I think during the pandemic, it made me miss home more and more because the house that I grew up in was it was very special to me in my childhood because we have a beautiful view seeing you know, Pigeon Island on Martinique, the neighboring island from from our kitchen window. So every morning, my mom was always like, she's like, let's just sit down and just watch the view. So I became very appreciative of my surroundings, you know, having... Mango trees in our backyard, guava trees, you know, huge lime trees, every fruit you could think of at my fingertips. So when everything's in season, it's just a beautiful time to be in that house. Um, And just cooking with my mom and spending time with my mom, I I miss that a lot.
1: That's a wonderful image. And we're going to talk a little bit about your family home because it was not just any family home. And it sounds like the view was incredible. When not at one of your places and you have a rare night off, which I'm sure does not happen often. Where do you and your husband, who is also your business partner, Larry Miller, where do, where do you guys go for date night?
0: You know, it's it varies. We, we keep it very low-key because, you know, being in a restaurant, um, it is a lot to take in, you know, a lot of moving parts. So we just try and go somewhere very chill. We live around the corner from Bacchanal Wine. So normally we go there and just sit outside, listen to some live music, and then walk a block to our house. Um, you know, we just go to like very local neighborhood places where we can just walk to and just walk back. Um, the neighborhood is the Byworth, so it's, you know, very eclectic. What I love about New Orleans is that there's, there's no cookie cutter neighborhood. Every house is different on the block and very unique. And that's what I love about walking through the neighborhoods because you get to look, look at everybody's house because people put a lot of effort into their houses. Um, and now it's jasmine season, springtime. So every corner of the neighborhood just perfumes, you know, this beautiful jasmine aroma. And we just love walking through the neighborhoods and just, you know, going to the country club and having lunch and just walking around and just having a leisurely time, just taking what's around us.
1: That sounds magical. Did I read somewhere that you also have a dog?
0: I have two. I have two. Uh, so we have a Pomeranian, Rocky, and then we have a, a rescue from the Baton Rouge flood that happened like four years ago. Uh, he's a he's a mixed breed. He's uh, his name is Hank, and Hank is the love of my life. <laughs> he he really he really is. We call him the fanciest dog because tail is so curly, like it's a perfect little round, and he is. So proper, there's the way he prances around and the way he sits up. He, I almost want to give him a bow tie and a pocket square because I <laughs> think he would he would wear it so well because he is the most proper dog you'll ever meet. Debonair. Yes, very much. <laughs>
1: That's so fun. My wife and I have rescued several dogs. We're German Shepherd lovers, and my mom, who's oh. no longer with us, would often give. Our dogs, this incredible backstory that, you know, she made up, but seemed to go with their personalities. But uh, we are we are absolutely dog lovers. Um, So, Chef, who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party?
0: It would be this would be this would be by mix. It would be Michelle and Barack Obama, Bob Marley and my father and my grandmother. That's who I would like to have just to sit down and just talk about life. You know, my grandmother, she she passed away a couple of years. And, you know, it's it's funny because I remember when it was the year 2000 and everybody was freaking out about the world crashing and just everything just going to, we don't know what's going to happen for Y2K. And I remember it was New Year's Day and she's she she raised a glass of champagne. She's like, I've made it to the year 2000, and she lived a long life. I mean, she she passed away in the 80s, but I would I would like to have like just seen the world now through her eyes, mm. you know. And the same with my father, because my father was you know very involved in you know the government systems of Saint Lucia, and just wanted to see what he thinks of the world now um and then of course Barack and Michelle Obama who are presently alive and to see what they see now and where we're going to go and i think with Bob marley he was so instrumental in bringing people together um and just again seeing the world through his eyes now
1: that would be an interesting dinner table that you just, just described
0: <laughs> yeah, it would be <laughs> any of us would love
1: to be there um yeah and i i as you're saying that i think about my dad who uh, passed away in 2007 before Barack got in office, and I always thought, you know, how he would have reacted to know that uh, we elected an African-American uh, yes. president. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right, last one of these. Your fondest childhood food memory.
0: That would be going to the beach with my family, and we always brought a bag of fruit, whether it's an orange, oranges or mangoes, whatever was in season, we always brought bag of fruit from the gardens over to the beach. And I think my fondness memory, swimming with my siblings and dipping that mango into the salty water and just taking a bite <laughs> and having that that sweet, salty bite of the warm mango juice just dripping down my chin. That's my fondest memory. And that is, you know, something I, I want to relive because I went home for my 40th birthday and my dad always loved sailing every Easter, the entire family, because his His family was from the Grenadines, which is a big sailing um, community on those islands. It's every weekend people went sailing or fishing. And my dad was, he loved sailing. And he was involved in the regatta that happened every Easter weekend there. So we always would travel there. And I hadn't been since my dad passed. I always, you know, thought about those memories and I told my mom, like, you know, for my birthday, I I don't want any gifts. I just want to go sailing to the Grenadines and relive those memories. And those islands are so beautiful and so untouched. And I remember I looked at my mom and we're sitting on the boat and I said... I, I think it's time for me to move back to the Caribbean and I want to spend my golden years um, there because it is it's truly special. There's nothing like it. Um, and I want to spend, you know, my, my mom is going to be 75 this year and I want to spend as much time with her as I can. And there's only one way to do it is, is in the Caribbean.
1: You had me at mango and salt water, the ocean. I mean, I'm, I'm still envisioning that mango juice and <laughs> everything else you just described is uh, like a lifelong dream. I'm I'm a Caribbean yes. beach mango guy. So I yes. am right there with you. Chef, thank you so much again for taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy and, uh, and by the way, congratulations. I just uh, got my issue of uh, Plate magazine this morning and I saw oh. your cover. <laughs> congratulations. Thank you look you look thank lovely. You. So I want to check in with you. So how, how are you and how have you handled the challenges of the past year?
0: I have never been happier. I think last year was so traumatic, for, I think, for the entire industry. And to see that now we have turned the corner, you know, I feel very hopeful for my business and also for the, for the industry. You know, I, when, you, when I backtrack and I think about March 15th, we were busy. We just came off, you know, very busy Mardi Gras. And the city is buzzing and it's it's very festive. We had, you know, Jazz Fest and French Quarter Fest, all these things lined up on the books. And starting to see New York and Chicago shut down their, their restaurants, I just never saw it coming down to the south. I just thought that this is it's an up north thing um, because it's cold. You know, it's March where we have this beautiful, you know, 70 degree weather. You know, it's already flu season for us. And I just thought that it would just never affect us. And I remember we actually got our first case in Louisiana. I'm like, oh, it'll just be like a couple of cases. We'll be okay. And then it started happening where we started to close schools, and then there was the curfew, and things just started happening very quickly. And we couldn't pivot quickly enough to, to, to keep up. And when we closed indoor and outdoor dining my husband and I just said, you know, let's just close the restaurant because we we don't have any information. We don't know what's going to happen. And um, it was very strange because we had no choice but to close and sit down and think about how are we going to carry on operating safely? Because back in March, nobody was really, really wearing a mask. We were just told six feet apart and make sure you wash your hands for 20 seconds. So we closed and we just said, okay, maybe this will be maybe a month and we'll get cases down and then we'll continue with business but um you know we we had a we actually had our first zoom call with all the restaurant owners in town because we didn't know anything so i said let's just have a a call together and check in with everybody and see what how we can approach this together and nobody really had the answers so a lot of people closed their restaurants. Some people reopened to do takeout. But it was just a long road because, again, information wasn't there and the government was not reacting quickly enough. And we didn't have any information. So we were kind of lost in the dark on how do we carry on the business. Um, And as time went on, cases went down and we were allowed to reopen slowly. But it was very stressful because, you know, telling your staff you can come back to work or you can stay home. You know, when we reopened, I was scared to be around anybody. I was cooped up for two months. And actually venturing out was a little stressful. So we opened by American Bistro first. And I told my husband, let's just do tasting menu, which is not our normal format. And we'll do one table a night of two people. And he said, okay. And I said, let's just try and figure out how we... Allow people back into our dining room, make them feel safe and also make our staff feel safe was a very big thing for us. So we did that for a month and then we eventually opened it up slowly, but we just really wanted to test the water and, and see how we can, you know, operate safely for everybody.
1: Yeah. And without clear direction, um, that, that became a very difficult thing to do. And then of course you have your staff. Of however many people between two places that uh, are accustomed to going to you for some certainty and and answers, and now their income has been you know completely shut off, and you don't necessarily have a, a definitive answer for them. So I'm sure right. that had to add to your stress load.
0: Well, yes, it did because you know when when we shut down, I think the week leading up to it, I I think I looked like a day in headlights because I literally didn't have the answers and for me being an owner and being in charge of all of these people between both restaurants and always having an answer. No, we're going to do it like this or we're going to do it like this. And people were coming to me and like, chef, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I have no idea. You know, I was looking to to our mayor was, he did a very good job of running running the show, but for me, not having the answers to tell my staff and then also to have a staff meeting and say, hey, we're going to close until further notice. It was hard um to tell people, hey, file for unemployment until further notice. I mean, I I cried in front of my staff because I felt like I let them down. And, you know, these are people that have families that rely on me to keep them employed. Um, and when you don't have those answers, you feel like you've let them down. And that was a very, very hard point for me because, you know, when we were locked down, I would check with my staff because again, that was, that's also a very stressful thing. You know, you had people that were used to a certain schedule of going to work, you know, um, and then some people didn't know how to adjust to not working, not being occupied. You know, they had some people that, uh, had to take care of, you know, six family members during quarantine. You know, they had some people that, um, you know, they were taking care of three or four kids and they're cooped up in their house and they, can't leave their house, you know, it's, it was a very hard time for everybody, um, to go through those things. But again, you know, I was able to bring back nearly all of my staff who wanted to come back. And, you know, it was a very stressful time because restaurants weren't busy, uh, last year. So the stresses of operating the business, but, you know, knowing that I'm keeping my staff employed, you know, I felt like it's it's going to, things are going to bounce back eventually, which they are. Mm-hmm. And I think I've changed as a person in the sense of, you know, being thankful every day to go to work every day and see my staff employed and happy and safe. All of them are vaccinated. Um, So I feel like Everything that happened last year, we went through so much that anything that happens this year we're just like nothing could be worse than twenty twenty <laughs> um and yeah. it, it's it's we we've had a different outlook on everything where I don't take things seriously as I used to because I'm kind of living in the moment a little bit more because you know I think we just got used to having things a certain way and I think it was kind of you know I think it was kind of God just saying like hey you guys are taking you know things for granted like seeing your family all the time and traveling and going out and being around people and I think we just took those things for granted where now we had to reset and and say hey you know, traveling for a vacation, it's a luxury. We just got so used to jumping on a plane and going on a trip or, you know, seeing friends and family. Now it's, its you take those things like, I'm thankful to go see my mom, you know. So I think it, it was a good reset button that had to be hit, I think a lot of people were thankful for things to slow down including myself because you know i traveled a lot for work i worked a lot of hours and there were some things where i said you know i want to be able to enjoy my morning with my husband and my dog before i go to work i want to do those things um and get things in perspective of it's not always about go, go, go. It's about taking time for yourself. And also the power of telling people no is very important because I found myself victim to saying yes to every event and every, you know, whatever it does, yes, I'll I'll do it. I'll help you out. I'll do all these things. And I ended up taking you know, my time out of my schedule and not leaving any time for myself. And that's one of the things I want to preserve is taking time for my family and for myself uh, and preserving my light because, you know, if I don't preserve my light, you know, my staff and the people, my team around me need me to be energized and have my light, you know, really bright. You know, if my light is dim, that affects, you know, everybody around me.
1: Absolutely. That, that's why they tell you to put uh, in the airplane, put your oxygen mask on first, right? Before you help, right, you know even your 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 kid next to you, which is um not necessarily or it's kind of counterintuitive, but uh you know to your right. point, yes. some self care is is essential, and you know i I' concur i mean i certainly we don't wish any suffering on, and people have had a very difficult time this year but it has given us some room to pause and really contemplate the way that we live our lives. And, I, and I've and i done the same thing as you. And for that, uh, I'm, I'm certainly grateful. What is the um what's the current status of opening? Are you fully uh, indoor dining 100 uh, percent in New Orleans or what's the status now?
0: So we are at 75%. Uh, I mean, even if we go to 100%, it, is, it doesn't really affect adding more seats because we have to do six feet apart. So we can't add any more tables. But one of the things we did add at both restaurants, we never used to have outdoor tables. We always did indoors and it's actually really nice to have outdoor tables. Uh Compele Pen we have the wind the doors open. So it's it's a very nice energy. Um when people are, you know, sitting outside it's just it's just a really nice um I think addition to the restaurant. But I think when people are coming to restaurants now, everybody is so festive and so Thankful and happy. And you see a lot of people say, you know, I haven't been out to eat in months. I'm just thankful to be out. And a lot of people are celebrating life again um, in restaurants. You know, people are. You know, bringing their families together, you know, friends they haven't seen in, in, in months uh, and they're doing it in restaurants and catching up. And, you know, it's all the dining rooms in New Orleans are full and full of laughter and people are happy, you know. Um, and I think the great thing about New Orleans that kept us going were the locals, you know, a lot of people were not traveling to new Orleans you know the past year but the locals made it a point to support either through takeout or gift cards because everybody wanted to see their third restaurants thrive and survive and make it to the other side and you know we're very thankful that a lot of restaurants did not close here and you know the community here is very strong and supportive and I think that was you know very instrumental in us coming on the other side
1: Yeah, I, I love hearing that and I want to touch on something in a few minutes that I thought it was really cool um, when you guys were, were had first um, found the space for Compare Le Pen in uh, the hotel, and your husband was getting a little pressure from the hotel owner to to open right away, and and you both said no, we don't want to open until June, and the and the owner said, well, there's nobody here. No, in June it's quiet, and and you both were like, exactly, that's what we want. We want the locals, and I think you know to the point that you just raised, I'm sure that that uh, that endeared you to the uh, to the local clientele. But uh, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But first, sure. I want to talk about your dad and the, your the, your 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 royalty, Chef. Um, <laughs> the Compton name is associated with uh, political royalty in Saint Lucia. John Compton, your father, was the nation's first prime minister and considered yeah. uh, its founding father. And your your pops was no joke. I mean, I, I read a story about him. He was a charismatic and dynamic speaker, but early in his career, he made his name by drawing a gun on a sugar factory owner who had refused to recognize an employee union. So your dad was right. uh, quite a character. And uh, talk about him, but uh, just share with us if you don't mind. I mean, you, I know you started to, but uh, I, I don't think any of us mind hearing a little bit more about some of the memories that you had uh, growing up on such a beautiful tropical island as uh, St. Lucia.
0: You know, it, it's, it's funny that I never really saw my dad as the prime minister. He was always dad and you know it's my dad was he's very very humble you know he he had a very humble you know upbringing you know growing up in one a very very small island but my dad was very ambitious um he studied uh in england he studied law and then always wanted to come back to the caribbean and help implement what he learned overseas to help um the islands grow and you know he was very much about the people. He was very much, you know, people would tease. They would tease the going to school because, you know, as a prime minister, he, he had a driver that would drive him, you know, to official um, gatherings or, you know, if he had to go to the office. And he'd always tell the driver, I don't want you to drive me. I want to drive myself. And my dad, you know, he was one of his passions were, was farming. Uh, actually, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a farmer because that was something that my dad was very involved in. We had a farm in the south of the island. He would go there three times a week, very early in the morning. And that was kind of like his, his escape from all the stresses of, you know, running the island and, and trying to, you know, better, you know, the island, he would go to the farm every morning, every Wednesday and every Monday, he would get up at like 4am and drive down and just go and just, you know, farm. And he'd come back with, you know, coconuts or mangoes or root vegetables. Mm -hmm. And he would would make us every morning freshly squeezed juice from the garden. That was his thing. We call it daddy's juice. (laughs) Um, You know, so he was, he was very, he never, never said it, you know, he never put his family before work. He always said, you know, when I'm around my family, it's about family. And, you know, he would drive home every lunch, he'd drive home for lunch. And he'd have lunch with my mom or if my mom didn't have time, she would he would just have lunch by himself. And then he'd put the BBC on his little radio and then he'd go to take his nap while listening to the BBC. And that was it's funny because I remember hearing that beeping sound of the BBC growing up in my house. That's, every, that's all you'd hear. Um, so there were just things that remind me a lot of my dad. But, you know, he was he was for the people. He never put himself as I'm above you. And I think that's why people gravitated towards him because people could relate to him. I mean, he drove up a, a beat up pickup truck, you know, and people would see like, oh, they're like, daddy, <laughs> buy, a new, buy a new van, you know. <laughs> You come on, you're better than that. He's like, no, I, there's nothing wrong with it. It drives just fine. Um, you know, but he, people could relate to that, sure. you know. And one of the things that my dad always pushed for was education, making sure that we had well-equipped schools to provide proper education. So he spoke to people like John Hess of Hess Oil to, you know, build a school. Um, a lot of the things that um, were built were about education. You know, there's a lot of people that actually went on scholarships. And my, my mom was actually, she was in England a couple of years ago. And she was just walking down the street with my sister. And this guy stops. He's actually from Sanalisha. He ran into her and he said, I just wanted to say thank you. I would not be where I am without your husband because I was able to come to to England on a scholarship and with my education because my dad developed a lot of scholarship programs to help people go overseas um, and get an education. And that was one of the things that he really pushed for was getting people educated.
1: What a what an example of leadership to to grow up around. I mean, it's incredible. And you know, Chef, you, you use the word a couple of times and I and I've read in certain things about you that you in describing your dad you use the word humility and uh i've also read that said about about you and you know some would say you know that um coming from privilege especially in the culture that we live in today that you know kind of look at culture that some would project that go out of their way to project that but you took the opposite approach and you you downplayed it and i would think entering the the culinary culture of new orleans with an authentic dose of humility came in handy
0: yes i i think that is something that i learned growing up from my from my from my parents you know we never flaunted. oh you know father, your father's the prime minister and you know we never we never did that we we definitely wanted to be relatable you know to the people that we are around you know it's not not about oh look at me you know it was more like I'm just like you. I'm a human, you know. Um So those are the things that, you know, my, I watched my dad do. He never said, oh, well, you know, I get to do what I want because I'm the prime minister. He never, he never said that, you know. Um, And I think that's something that kept us kind of in line because, you know, when I went to school overseas, nobody cared if I was prime minister's daughter or not. Um, And I just kept it quiet. You know, there were a lot of people that knew me for years and they would Somebody's like, Oh my gosh, I've known you for all these years and I didn't know that your father was a prime minister and I just said, I just didn't mention it, you know. Um And I think that it's something about leading by example. You know, being in the kitchen, is not about I'm the chef. You do as I say. Um, And some of that does have to play a little bit, Mm -hmm. but it's also about setting example. You know, I I tell my staff, I'm like, there's not a single person in this restaurant that has a bigger role, myself included. Everybody is equally important here. And I give them an example. You know, the cook doesn't show up, the entire restaurant suffers. Mm -hmm. If the dishwasher doesn't show up, the entire staff suffers if... A hostess doesn't show up. We feel it. Everybody has a part to play, and it's equally important. There's not a single person that I can say, "Oh, we don't, we don't need this person." Or it's we need everybody. Everybody has an important part to role. So if I'm sweeping floors, it's not beneath me. It's part of the job. You know, everybody has to do everything, and it should never be, "Oh, well, he's the dishwasher, or he's just a you know breakfast cook." I always make sure that everybody has, you know. An equal role and everybody's respected. You know, I think it's that's about- you know
1: an essential quality. And and you know, from the various uh, people in our industry that I've spoken with, you know, the the humility and hospitality kind of go go hand in hand. I want to um I want to just kind of take a quick stroll back um a little bit here to to your start now. How you end up, I, I understand that the Culinary Culinary Institute in Hyde Park is the best culinary school, but to go from St. Lucia to Hyde Park is, to me, a, a tough journey just because of the weather, yeah. but I'm going to give you that. I know you had good reason for going there. So you graduated mm-hmm. in 2001. Uh, and you secured a job at Danielle, uh, one of New York's most rarefied French restaurants, Danielle Boulogne. That's a kitchen that anyone would want on their resume. Things didn't quite go as you had hoped there. Um, you left disillusioned. I'm curious, as a woman of color in a kitchen of that stature, if you could elaborate just a little bit um, on that experience.
0: Well, I mean, my whole vision of, you know, leaving Lucia. I mean, my plan was never ready to, to live anywhere else. Um, I wanted to open a little bakery, a little cafe and, you know, go to the beach every day. I wanted to have that life. Um, But I, you know, when I told my parents I wanted to become a chef, my mom is just like, why do you want to do that? It's so much stress, no money. You work weekends. You you're gonna burn yourself. You're gonna cut yourself. And she's like, just. And I said, Mom, I think I really want to do this because I, you know, I, I cooked for my family so many times and saw how happy they were. i like, I want to just let you cook for everybody. And she says, okay, you know, if you really want to do that, you need to get a job. So I must have been 17 or 18, and we said, okay, well, you know, at, at that point, there there were not really any you know, fine dining restaurants on the island at that time. Um, so she said, well, if you want to get like a proper training, like a formal training, go work at a hotel, um, And I, which I did. I worked at Sandals for a year and I loved it. I loved the, the opportunity to go to other kitchens. I started off in the pastry kitchen and I went to the Garnage kitchen. Then I went to the specialty restaurants and I was just excited to learn so much and learn different cuisines. But at that point, I felt like I had hit a ceiling. So I went to the German manager and said, Listen, I know you have other properties in the Caribbean, can I go to Jamaica? I would really like to learn something new. So I was there, supposed to be there for a year. I ended up staying two years because I just fell in love with Jamaica. Again, people think all the islands are the same. They're completely wrong. The food in Jamaica was completely different to what I, what we normally cook in St. Lucia. So I was really excited about learning something new. And the chef at that time was from, he was from America. And I said to him, like, chef, you know, I've, I've worked in every kitchen and I'm just not moving up. I feel like I've hit a ceiling. And he said, you know, the next step for you was to go to motor culinary school. And he said, there's johnson wales and there's the Culinary institute of america and he said you know they're both very good i went to hyde park and i think it's you know a very top top-notch uh school for culinary arts so i went home and i told my parents hey my chef said i should go to culinary school for, for the advancement you know what do you think and they said okay if you're really serious about this then go ahead and do that so i went to hyde park and again i again I was just, you know, a sponge sucking everything up that I could because it's for me, was, you know, first of all, going to the States and going to it was very expensive for an international student. So I wanted to maximize as much time as I could and take everything in. And um, I always had the vision of I'm only going to be in the States for a couple of years and everything I'm going to do, I want to be the best at it. I want to learn from the best. And at that time, French food was at the highest it could ever be. Um, and, you know, Eric Repair, Daniel Balud, they were cooking, you know, French at a very, very, very high level. And I saw it as an opportunity to not only learn from the best, but also we don't have that kind of food back home. So if I could learn something new and implement that, um, that's what I was going to do. And that kitchen was the most beautiful kitchen I've been in. You know, the, the mentality is perfection or nothing. Uh, it's a very tough kitchen because the standards are so high and I very rarely saw any mistakes happen in that kitchen. And it was a very, very intense, very male dominated. But, you know, again, I just came in with the mentality, I'm here to learn as much as I can. And, you know, that, that was, that was the goal, which I did. Uh, um, it was a, it's very instrumental because that was my first fine dining restaurant I worked in. And I'll never forget this. It was lunch service. This is right before 9-11. And, you know, restaurants were very busy. And Daniel Baloo came in because we had a VIP come in. And I wore Garmage, and he came over to my station. And we were very busy, and he was just going through my entire station because he, he wanted to make this dish for his VIP. And he said, "What what is this? This station is a mess. And he's, like, going through everything. And I remember he said, stop what I'm doing and watch how oh, I want the station organized. And I remember he did that. And he said to me, if you don't have respect for the ingredients, they won't respect you back. And that always stuck with me because I learned how to be organized, treat things with respect. And that's how you create beautiful food is having that mutual respect for the food. Mm-hmm. And that's how you create things. So I, I think that, yes, it was a very incredibly stressful kitchen to work in, but I learned the most fundamental things mm-hmm. that have, have helped me carry through my career, um, and which I would have never done if I never worked in that kitchen. So I'm very thankful for that.
1: That really is something how, you know, it it can be just one thing like that. And that's the thing that stays with you. And maybe the thing that you were meant to get, you know, from, from the experience. Yep so um i'm gonna i'm gonna move along a little bit but you go to work in miami you open you do a couple of places there you open a, a, the um, miami version of um or outpost of scarpetta at the fountain blue yes pretty elite guest list i would say that that showed up for lunch mariah carey alex rodriguez yeah, and, yeah. and um, then top chef finds you and um you get approached about going on the show and, uh, we've talked a little bit about that experience. You, you make it all the way to the finale and, uh, lost, but folks were not happy that you lost. And, uh, you actually won the postseason fan favorite award. So after that experience, offers just start pouring in the wonder of TV exposure. And, uh, so you're in demand. I would think that just had to be exhilarating to, to all of a sudden go from, I wouldn't say complete obscurity because I'm sure you were make impressing people along the way, but to the level of attention that TV brought, you had to be uh, a little bit of a, of a charge.
0: Yes. It was, you know, when I got the the call, I was kind of shocked. I was shocked and flattered. I said, you know, I called Scott Curran, who was my, the owner of Scott Fair at the time. And he, uh, I said, I'm like Scott. What should I do? Should I, should I do this? He said, he's like, yeah. He's like, you might even win. And he's like, it's gonna be good for, um, you know, getting your name out there. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I, I got this chance with this TV show. And she says, like, don't do it, Nina. It's too much stress for me. I don't think I'll ever watch the show. She's like, just please don't do it. She's like, <laughs> I, my heart. She's like, my heart just can't take it. <laughs> and I, I said, I said, but mom, but I can actually. And this was this was my whole driving force of of being on the show was cooking Caribbean food that you know a lot of people just don't know about Sanusian food and I really wanted to like kind of highlight Caribbean food as something that is is really special and unique and um, how do we you know put that on the map mm-hmm. so I was able to you know, not have any barriers of what I could cook. I could cook anything I wanted. Um, so I think, you know, being on Top Chef, I became more creative as a chef. You know, it's, you had just focused on two plates. It was it was very difficult, very hard, because you've taken all your elements. You're cooking in a different kitchen every day. Um, you don't know what your challenge is going to be. You think you may know, but it, it never pans out the way you plan. But I was able to cook for a lot of chefs that actually... You know, I have admired for a long time. I never dreamed of cooking for what I did on the show. Uh, and then, you know, once the show wrapped, you know, people were very upset. And I just didn't I, didn't, I just I guess, you know, I didn't think that people would be that upset at the time. But I guess when people are emotionally invested in the show and they they I guess they they fall in love with you you know um and they they want to see you win and and be hopeful you know i have a lot of, still after seven years people still message me they you know i just watched your, your season again because i couldn't believe that you lost the first time around <laughs> they were
1: expecting a and different then, ending
0: <laughs> right you know so people are I, people come to the restaurant they say you know you really should have won and you know it's i think in more ways, it, it wasn't even about winning. I think I won in many other ways. I think, you know, people still support me. Um, people are still, you know, happy to see that I have two restaurants, um, and I'm doing well. So I think in many ways I won, you know, it wasn't about the grand prize of, you know, or the title of it. It was, I think. I won in many other ways, um, which I'm thankful for.
1: I think I think we would all agree that that you have won in many other ways, chef. So when you your, your food has been described and you kind of just went into it a little bit, too, as a, a you know, borrowing from your rich culinary he- heritage. And and so you mix New Orleans, uh, your Caribbean roots, you tap into classical French. Because that's also been your training and you've had deep experience with Italian. I mean, th- that's like everything I love. I, I, and looking at your <laughs> food, it, the pictures are phenomenal. I mean, it really, really just looks incredible. And I'm not just saying that it, it really does look inc- and sound incredible. Thank you. So yeah, sure. When you, when you thought about the menu, uh, and, and, you know, you're here, you are integrating yourself into New Orleans and g- given your humility, I'm sure, you know, you wanted to, you know, just kind of step in quietly, but, were you were you hesitant at all in terms of how how wide ranging or what what you could actually put on your menu? Did did were you concerned about straying too far from tradition, or you were you feeling pretty bold and confident and putting your stamp on it?
0: Well, you know, I I just figured a lot of things. I would just try and see what happens. Um, you know, the curry goat. When we first put it on, you know, I said, you know, a lot of people don't really eat goat. And, you know, if it doesn't sell, just take it off the menu or something else will come up. And, um, it's the number one selling dish. Even but after chef, six years. You, you
1: put the curried goat on sweet potato gnocchi. who's not going to want that?
0: <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, I, I didn't know, but I mean, we, <laughs> it's the number one selling dish. It's. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could put anything on the menu. It is guaranteed the goat's still going to be the number one dish. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a lot of things were just about being respectful mm-hmm. of, you know, traditions. A lot of people say, oh, you know, why don't you have gumbo on the menu? Why don't you do this? Why don't you have jambalaya? And I said, you know what? There's just some things I will not put in the menu because they are so sacred. And you, you know, it's, I just prefer to use it, uh you know, locally inspired dishes on the menu. And my interpretation of, you know, just different spices or preparations. But, I mean, the classics that are done here, I just really don't want to, you know, piss anybody off. <laughs> I want to be very respectful because, you know, you talk about gumbo. People, everybody has their opinions. Oh, do you put okra in your gumbo? Do you put, you know, seafood? Do you, it, it, there's just so many things in it where you just really don't want to... You know, it's, it's something that's been around for years I and mean, you just really don't want to upset anybody because everybody's, you know, my, my grandmother makes the best gumbo. My cousin makes <laughs> the best gumbo. It's like everybody makes right. the best gumbo. And I, I don't want to compete with that. Yeah,
1: I've always felt in various places that I've done uh, where Southern food has been the, the focus that mac macaroni and cheese was always the litmus test because you're competing against Moms and grandmoms and everybody's. Does right, it,
0: right, you know, a right. Way.
1: Um, and it's funny, you know, when we opened the last place we did in LA was a place called Post and Beam, which was a kind of a modern take on, on Southern food and a California, uh, influence. So I had a guy come up to me mid-service and say, you know, this is a great place, but you know, really semi-fredo. Where's the peach cobbler? <laughs> <laughs> and I see right, you have right, semifredo right. on your dessert menu. You made me think right. of that. It was very, very funny, very, very funny moment.
0: Um, but funny. tater
1: tots, creme fraiche, caviar, buttermilk gnocchi, sausage gravy. I mean, these th- these things just sound so delicious.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, it's about having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's really about. I, I think people, especially after the past year, they just, they just really want comfort. They really want to, you know, have that bowl of, you know, curry goat as a warm hug. I think people just want to mm-hmm. just be taken care of. You know, I think that's what people really want more than anything now is, you know, it, it, it was very stressful for a lot of people, you know, and it's about enjoying a moment, a night out and, and being taken care of, I think, is really special now.
1: And I know you have a, a vibrant bar scene and a fantastic cocktail list. But chef, the thing that caught my eye was the house made ginger beer.
0: Oh yes, and that's something that is very near and dear to my heart. And again, it's just about bringing people, you know, things that I grew up with. You know, you talk about things like conch. You know, I grew up with that, and just about giving people just a little bit, just a couple of tidbits of, you know, my upbringing and what, what I enjoy.
2: Yeah,
1: um, wanted we have, we're we're getting close to the end here. But before before I last ask you the last couple of questions, I. Notice that you have a 4% surcharge on your menu and uh, that's for wages for back of house and been reading how across the country, there have been hiring shortages. Just a lot of people have left our industry and there just aren't enough employees right. around. Um, how has that worked for you? Have you gotten any pushback from customers? Have, have the employees appreciated? I'm sure they appreciate the additional wage, but what's, what's the feedback on that policy?
0: You know, it, it's been really helpful. Um, I talked to a lot of restaurant owners last last summer when we were reopening, and you know it's one of those things where restaurants were losing a lot of money last year, so you know we were trying to implement a way of trying to bounce back from having a you know a terrible year you know because we saw it as okay we're gonna op- we're gonna open up, and then six months from now you know we'll have to do reviews and people will wanna rate and we were just trying to make. You know, I think the kitchen, you know, they it's been a very tricky situation where, you know, the tipping thing in in some states that the kitchen can't get those tips because they're not, I guess, legally, they have to serve the food uh, to right. be part of the tip pool. So there were a lot of things we just, you know, a lot of you hear a lot of nightmare stories of people that um, have done that to, you know, tip out their cooks and they get sued by service. It's just becomes very messy. And, you know, we thought about just doing a flat-out service charge for front and back of the house. But then, you know, it's one of those things that Danny Meyer tried a couple of years ago, and that didn't work. And we saw it as if Danny Meyer can't do that, right. then who the hell are we? So <laughs> we just said, you know, 4% to each check. Um, it goes to the back of the house. It's separate from the front of the house. Uh, Some people are very happy to, to, to be, to see that. Um, because the kitchen doesn't work hard. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. You know, the kitchen, when you really think about things, you know, I look at if I go to a restaurant and the service is good and the food is terrible, I don't go back to the restaurant. If the food is really good and the service is, you know, a little spotty, I'll go back because the food was good. And a lot of people, that's how I look at my restaurant as well. at the kitchen, we have a very consistent kitchen in terms of producing consistent food. And I think that's why we have been so successful is because you know, people don't really say, oh, well, you know, it's kind of so-so. The food is a little, you know, hit or miss. So I think that, you know, giving the kitchen appreciation, it, it's very helpful. And it's it, they're being very receptive the staff and very thankful for that. And I think that, you know, when you talk about the minimum wage going to be raised to 15, which I think it should be, um, I think the consumer has to understand that if I'm paying a dishwasher 15 or $16 an hour, The menu prices will have to reflect that because that's a higher wage higher you know um payroll i have to everybody has to pay now it has to reflect in the food menu prices
1: i think Um, i think the whole pricing paradigm in the independent restaurant world needs a closer look and i know it's what you know it it will only stand what the market will bear but given what has been exposed this past year with lack of health care trying to you know just uh, maintain staff and, and frontline worker status and all of that. Plus razor thin, notoriously thin, uh, profit margins. You know, our, our pricing paradigm is, is really, I think in need of a, a look, but uh, we'll save that part right. of the conversation for another time. So I, I want to, yeah. I want to end on something that uh, I thought was really, uh, really touching that I read. Uh, Leah Chase, the legendary New Orleans chef. Um, actually came to see you. And and um, she said to you, she said, quote, welcome to the city. We're so happy to have you. Listen, you have to make it. We're counting on you. She said, Nina, if you make it, you're leading the way for other black female chefs to make it in New Orleans. I mean, that's pretty, Nina, that, that's pretty much the equivalent of passing the baton, you know, to use a, a track metaphor. Do you feel the extra weight of, running the leg of race that you are now well and furthering the, the Leah Chase legacy. I mean, I know you have your own high standards, but to get that kind of direct, you know, nod from from the queen herself had to have been a kind of a special moment for you.
0: It, it, it you know, I still feel, I just remember her putting her hand on my shoulder saying, you got to make it. And there was no other choice to say, yes, Miss Lear, you know, um, she was, you know, such a uh, strong woman. She reminded me a lot of my grandmother. When I first met her, I looked at her and she had the same small stature of my grandmother, the same haircut um, and the same mentality of being a strong woman, you know, taking taking no for an answer was not an option, uh, always pushing and making it happen. Um, so I looked up to her in many ways as I looked up to my grandmother and, you know, she I, her restaurant, you know, I, I know her family very well. And one of the things that I was I love about going to Dookie Chase is walking into that restaurant and seeing the entire family involved in that restaurant. Her granddaughter, her grandson, her daughters, everybody, her son, everybody is very involved in that in that restaurant, and it's a family affair. And you know, when you speak to any member of the Chase family, they are so humble, so godly, just good people you know, and that's because of her, you know, what she ingrained in her family. And, you know, I look at that structure, you know, very closely because, you know, I don't have kids, but, you know, my staff are very close to me. There are a lot of people that I hired that didn't have that much experience, but I believed in them. You know, I'm very proud to say that I have probably a lot a lot of women in my kitchens, actually compel a pen, we only have one guy on the line. Everybody else is a woman. And they're all black. Um, and that wasn't intentional, it just it was just very organic. A lot of them have been with me five years, six years, day one. So I think that says a lot because it's about uplifting women, believing in them. And that's I think for me I, I focus more on the training aspect. You know, helping them get from point A to point B, Um, and that's about nurturing them and saying, "Hey, you can do it. I believe in. I believe in you. You'll make some mistakes, but you know." And I, I, I push a lot. I push, I push my staff a lot because I want the best for for them, and I want to see them grow. You know, I have one girl who's been with me for about three and a half years, and you know, she says to me, "I'm not leaving here until I become a sous chef for you." So, you know, for me, I feel the pressure of getting her to, you know, to that point. But it's also nice to see that she wants to become a leader in, in the kitchen, you know, and have a goal, not just it's a job. So to see a lot of, you know, women look to me for that. I, it's it's really incredible.
1: Chef Nina Compton, you just embody so much that is just so special about what the uh, you know the world of independent restaurants offer these various cities that they're located in. You know, you've painted such a picture for me, and I and I believe our listeners. I think we all want to head to St. Lucia and New Orleans. Um, yeah. But I, I just I really want to thank you, and and sure that your schedule is busy, even though I know you said you've tried to slow down a little bit. Um, but just want to thank you so much for for coming on the show today and and sharing your thoughts and your wisdom and keep inspiring uh, the way that you have been. And uh, one la- one last question: Has Master P been to either of your restaurants? I know he's in New no,
0: Orleans, guy. but he he um his manager Boswell comes in a lot, and um, he they're just good people. Manny Fresh, Manny Fresh has come in. And I don't normally get starstruck, but Manny Fresh, he DJs around town and does all these things. And um, he came in and I was so starstruck. <laughs> um, and you know, you, you, you I think you just forget that these are just, they're just people, sure. you know, and they're coming in to have a good time. But Master P hasn't come in, but um, it's just nice to have, you know, I think New Orleans has such a vibe about them. And what I love about people here is that they're very proud of, you know, their culture and the people and the music and the food and they want to share it with the world. And I I just love that.
1: Yeah. And I I don't know Master P very at all or his music, but I I do admire, um, you know, his attempt to do uh, smart business Uh, endeavors to engage in smart business endeavors outside of the music business. I know he was trying to bring a grocery store to New Orleans, so I'm sure at some point he's going to venture through your doors. Well, Chef, thank you again so much for joining us today, and I'll let you get back to work, and uh, I promise you we are going to be seeing you very soon uh, in New Orleans at at one of your lovely restaurants, and uh, until then, you take care, and we wish you the best.
0: Yes, we'd love to have you guys in. Thank you for having me.
1: Moving on to uh, our Segment called How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz. Uh, Quite something that uh, Chef Nina Compton, the first daughter of St. Lucia, wouldn't you say?
2: Absolutely. You know, it was really interesting by when listening to her. And we certainly know the resume, but listening to the energy and the spirit, like potency and power at the same time. You know, it's she's polite. She's giving and certainly confident. In her journey, and she mentioned in her interview that, you know, when one leads by example, these are the samples that you have and referencing her father, notwithstanding his esteemed role and her mother and the significance of both um, has we are the beneficiaries of and how she manages who she is in the industry, um, introduces us to the cuisine and culture and history of St. Lucia. And, you know, one of the things, you know, me, I just love all that introduces, you know, and connects us to the world, you know? So whether it's the Caribbean by way of Africa, the Caribbean by way of the East Indies in terms of its spices and preparations and, and the nutritious value of those said elements and ingredients, but it's the love in how she prepares her food. Listening to her, watching her in video clips and it's you it's almost um, you can reach her. She's touching you. So um, it's really very, very you know, exciting. Also, when I think about and I think about her father, her father was born in the Grenadines, you know, in the Caribbean, you know, with all of the islands, you know, you're one person or one island away from the other. And since, you know, my family is from Grenada, the Grenadines, they all share part of the same water. So, you know, when I get a chance to speak to her again, I'm going to make that connection, you know, um, but to even explore, compare, Le Pant, mm-hmm. it's perfect to be in, in New Orleans, you know, um, Someone had written once um, for for some, and I'm quoting for some. New Orleans is considered the northernmost city of the Caribbean, where the industry, where the history, food, and music of here and there intertwines. And most people don't realize the significance of that land area. People go in and out for Mardi Gras, they go in and out for the Essence Festival, they go in and out for the various music, musical concerts, and everything. But in the early 19th century. You know during the Haitian Revolution, thousands of refugees from San Dominique, which was Santo Domingo, which was the island of hispaniola um one part we now know is Haiti, you know arrived in New Orleans, doubling the population shortly thereafter was a new wave of Cubans and so the presence that which we get while it's an american based city it's a global mecca of flavor and and it's nonstop you know when you, as soon as you land. <laughs> You feel like you've been transported, but you haven't had to use your passport. You know, you know what else
1: uh, really struck me about about Nina was, you know, her her level of expertise, um, you know, her culinary expertise. When when you take the various cuisines that uh, she's influenced by French, Caribbean, Italian yeah. and you and you execute those at the high, high level that she's capable of. how exciting just just it's a place I, I really cannot wait to go there now and dine in her place.
2: <laughs> no, I felt the same way when I was listening to her. And she says it so easily, so smooth <laughs> and so so tempered. But you know, there's an explosion of, of excitement when one goes in there and pulls up a chair to the table, ready to dine. And also listening to you, I know how your palate is. And I, I know you rubbing your hands together in anticipation and a plane can't get you there fast <laughs> enough. That's why I said, I'm joining you and your wife down there. There
0: you getting. are. Yeah,
2: that yeah. that uh, that curry <laughs>
1: goat and that mango <laughs> juice that. dripping down my well, arm really in the know. ocean.
2: Well, you know the, another thing when people think of Caribbean food, they just like the end result, but you know the kinds of flavors that she puts like in her her seasoning sachets are also healing herbs in terms of clove and. And cinnamon or nutmeg or um, paprika, those kinds of things. And so when you're, when I start thinking about how the food that you're humming about when you're eating, you know, and that kind of num 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 num, when food is so good, I'm also thinking about how good it is for you, um, which is very essential, at least for me, you know, as a person, really really key about the ingredients. In a food, So if you can not have the lack of uh, healthy food on your mind, you know, sometimes we dive in, it is not good for you, but you're enjoying it. But if you can get that out of the way and know that while you're enjoying the food, it's also good for you. And it all has a story, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you understand that it's not just the culinary, the academics of culinary cuisine or practice. This is something she's carrying with her. It journeys with her. It has a story of grandma and grandpa.
1: Good for you and sounding good to me is getting me on a plane real soon. soon. So You said soon yeah, come. Yeah, soon comes. Soon well, you,
2: come. you know. So what I want to be able to, you know, when we talk about encouraging um, people to... Patronize Black-owned restaurants and or hotels. I want to say people dive, dial in, go down to New Orleans. And in addition to having dinner at Compare Lapin, try staying at the Hubbard Mansion. A friend of mine, Mark Morial, who is also from New Orleans, recommended this small guest house. It's a bed and breakfast. And it's superb. So do both. Stay at one place and journey to the other to dine
1: that's wonderful what's the uh, place to stay in again
2: hubbard mansion, Hubbard's the mansion. hubbard mansion and, and it, right. it's described as a buckingham palace with a uh, creole flair
1: all right now well that's where we're that going right? that's what that's yes, what we're right. booking ambassador <laughs> shabazz how we move you just told us how we're supposed to move and we know and how you, we're get getting a, ready get so thank you so much <laughs> and uh, we will see you soon
2: yes you shall
1: bye 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 Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.